This episode is sponsored by Arc IT, and you'll find out more about them later on in the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Evan Troxell. And in this episode, I'm joined by Aaron Maller of Parallax Team. That's Maller like Mallard the Duck, as Aaron says it, without the D. He doesn't correct people who pronounce his name incorrectly. So let this podcast be the guiding light for all of you out there who are talking to Aaron, Aaron Maller. Aaron is well known in the world of Revit Consulting and his often opinionated nature in Revit forums and technology conferences, and his point of view never assumes that we should continue to do things the way they have always been done, which I totally appreciate. On the Parallax Team website, it says, Sometimes technology is an answer. Sometimes technology is the problem. Sometimes technology is neither. But our captivation with it distracts us from looking at the issue critically. And it also says we are critical thinkers and problem solvers, not technology, hardware, or software pushers. We develop workflows and strategies and processes that get teams to the finish line to help deliver quality projects. The original idea for this episode was around the framework of building a team versus building the team, which it seems Aaron has been pretty successful at doing. And we do get into that. But after a hell of a couple weeks, it was just good to have a conversation with him and catch up and talk shop. And in this episode, you'll hear Aaron's wife, Allison, who he references several times in our conversation on another call in the background, because they do share an office and work together. So please uh, forgive the audio there, but it was unavoidable and totally fine. We talk about how Parallax started and how he put together their fantastic team, some things that he's come up against along the journey of doing what they do, and we even mention a few tools that have become indispensable along the way, which might not be the kind of tools you're thinking we might talk about, and so much more. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Aaron Maller. do this sure yeah totally i don't have an agenda i don't have any prepared cool. questions uh last week was the week from hell and so i i would just love to have a conversation with you <laughs> absolutely i no no pressure we're, we're uh we both have plenty we could just go on about i'm sure yesterday my eight bay synology rack mount showed up nice oh I you got a rack mount awesome. i did i did because awesome i just wanted to clean things up now then i was thinking what if something goes wrong at the house? It's really hard to get the whole rack out. I should have just got the desktop because <laughs> that's the thing I would grab, right? That's what you get. That's what you get the S3 for and you just let it back up over yeah, the internet to I itself. But it, um, I got a lot of terabytes. That's the thing mm -hmm. I'm scared about is backing that up. It's expensive. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> like most of my projects like that are video. I mean, like photo and video sure so they, yeah, they yeah. just take up a lot of space and and do yeah. i need to save all the that footage i don't think so but do i want to go back and clean it out i don't want to do that either <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you know the fast way to do that is to like you know find somebody else you know that that wants to hold another disk station for you at their house and then you yeah. just back it up to their house <laughs> i think i'm gonna do that I, i'm gonna just send my old one over to my parents house and do that the truth comes out. That's really why we grew the team was just so I could have more destinations to put NAS devices in and back up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you guys are, you're just cheap insurance to me. <laughs> Can I rent three square feet of your house, please? <laughs> and some pretty, of your internet connection. <laughs> pretty much. Actually, it's, so it's, it's, it's really funny, you know, from an IT point of view. I mean, being a small company, when, when I started Parallax in 2015, uh, I got the advice of like two two folks who I still work with, and they're both you know pretty close to Parallax in terms of I've worked with them over the years, and they were like my two IT advisors. And obviously, I was trying to set up something you know fairly small, but I also had certain things that I wanted as requirements that a lot of small businesses don't care about. But it's like things that I needed to be able to test on behalf of clients. So I wanted an actual domain set up. I wanted a domain controller. I wanted virtual machines I could access. So we did all this stuff setting it up when you know. The typical 2020s 
way to set up companies like throw it all on SharePoint and MS365 and you're good. And so, so we do have like a NAS device, you know, at every location, which it's not very scalable, you know, if you're planning on being 50 people, it's probably something I would rethink. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but but for five, it works great. And everybody has kind of local resources. So performance is great. But yeah, it also is funny because when it was just me, so I had the one NAS and we were backing it up on site and we were backing it up to a cloud. And then when John came on board, so we had the second setup. And then because I was paranoid, this is, this is funny. Both NASs were backing up to the cloud, even though they were also copies of each other. <laughs> and then uh, as we've grown, so I mean, there's there's obviously four devices now, um, and now we're down to only one of them backing up to the cloud. So it's like, man, if all four houses catch on fire yeah. and the cloud goes down, I guess we just write it off as a bad day and we all go flip burgers on the beach. That which... would be quite an event, yeah. <laughs> I think it would be rather defeating if that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At that point, at that point, I just give up and you know right. it's over. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm gonna go make sandcastles. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, the, the analogy I always use on forums is, is funny, like on Revit forum or on Reddit, whenever I'm giving somebody help and I want to just talk about what I would do in a feudal situation, I'm like, I think I would go get a push cart and I would flip burgers on the beach. And I've got to say, the more times I say it, it sounds really validating. Like yeah. I would enjoy just walking on a boardwalk and flipping burgers. Like, And people would hand you cash and you would put it in your pocket. Yep. And it would be such a different experience, right? <laughs> then, uh, I, I just think it would be so much fun. Yeah. Like I, like I want to retire on a beach where I can just like have a little food cart and wander the beach. And yeah. that, that's, that's living. <laughs> my, my dream right now is to like find a, a small mountainside area that we could develop into like mountain biking trails and just be a destination for adventure. Like I want, I want a river coming by so i want a camping spot for people i want to i want to have beer and coffee and pizza <laughs> and that's it but at the same time like i don't want that business at all like i don't want to run it i just want to i just want to be there all the time so i can own it and i can hire a, a crew to run it you know like the best there, there are communities like that down here in texas for car racing yeah, you can buy like a condo on the racetrack wow. and you have to be okay with the sound of cars going by at 150 miles an hour. And these people buy these condos because it saves them all the cost. Like if they're hardcore and they're going to go race every Saturday or every Sunday, they don't have to trailer their car there. They just leave it at the condo. And it's just like living it, at a ski resort, right? Like you've got a, yeah, I've never heard of this before though. I, me either until uh, like Ali's brother uh, was telling me about it because they they like to go for track days down in Houston. And apparently there's a track up here near us and there's one down in Houston that's doing it. So it was pretty interesting. I thought, I think you've got a good car for autocross. Why don't you, you should start getting into that. And that thing is a that thing is a land beast. Big, I think it sedan. Would be, I think it would be out of control fun. But you've seen Ronan, right? Ronan's got to oh, be absolutely. one of your absolutely. one of your favorite movies. <laughs> I, I, I love I love that movie, and I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like before, I get rid of that car. I, I would love to try it once, <laughs> just it would to be see. Amazing. Yep. I mean, it go it goes through brakes and tires so fast yeah. that I just I couldn't see putting a beating on it like that. But the funny thing is it's so big and it's so inefficient that, you know, just in terms of how heavy it is, but it still goes faster than like any other car I've owned that I'm kind of like, even though you've got this massive laborious thing trying to go through a turn. I mean, when you stomp on it, it's going to come out of the turn so fast anyway, that I'm half tempted to try it and just see what it does. Well, and they use like the softest compounds for the brakes and the tires on those cars so that it's the best feel. And yeah, you go through them like crazy. I I had a, a4 yeah. that was just like that i mean it, and it is it like what breaks again what? yeah yeah it goes through it goes through tires in about 16 17,000 miles which right. is just depressing oh my gosh totally uh, i mean and they're on 21 so they're they're not fun to buy yeah um, <laughs> tires you know. are the worst the worst to buy like i get mad when i have to buy tires <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know, and I don't, I don't drive like a crazy person, but I do drive fast. And so the sales rep always laughs at me when I take that car into the dealership because she's like, yeah, the corners of your tires are just at, they're, they're all, they're gone. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, they are. (laughs) Was, was a good road trip car though. I, you know, I had to drive it to Atlanta, you know, for, to a client's recently, and it was actually a great car for the trip and, uh, you know, good enough to get a ticket in Louisiana, which was awesome. Oh, wow. uh, 
Yeah. Uh, and I didn't realize that was a thing because I mean, I haven't done an interstate road trip since like 2011 or 2012 when I drove back to New York, but they're like, ah, Texas plate, let's get him in Louisiana. And right. Like, okay. Yep. Target. So yes, <laughs> yes. They've got their, their camera with the computer vision, just looking for out-of-state plates, right? It's like Target. Pretty much, pretty yeah. much. <laughs> but it was my favorite kind of traffic stop because they were like super efficient. I was literally pulled over on the side, got my ticket. And on the, I'm like, the only thing that would have been more efficient is if they just walked up with the credit card machine right. that I could have just Pay, and, yep. Apple Pay, and been on the way, Samsung you know, Pay right there. That would, that would be great. Like I'm all about that. Uh, they were super efficient. They actually told us like, there's a sticker on the back. It tells you the website to go to, to go do your traffic thing, to get out of the ticket that you're getting in a few minutes. So oh, go to this. And I'm like, that's, that's how you do it. You got to be efficient. It's a business meeting that quota. <laughs> Again, like I, I feel like as an industry, we should do a little better. Like, like I'm like, man, even traffic enforcement, they've got this efficiency thing down. They're just yes. like, show up. Here's the prefill.form. Do that. And you're good. Well, that's kind of that. That is the idea of some of these companies. I had Brian Ringley on and talking about Spot a little bit. We, it was more of a just a holiday BS conversation. It was really fun, but we did get to Spot at one point. And I mean, that's the idea. You've got this robot that walks around the job site and actually, I mean, I think this was also the idea behind Doxel AI, which was the little tread based mm-hmm. um, yep. Facebook yep. robot. And and the idea was like you said that this ductwork is installed. We verify that it's installed. Yep, get paid for it. I can see how the promise of kind of linking all of these things together through blockchain and smart contracts and, you know, like these are a bunch of buzzwords and bells and whistles. But at the same time, it's like you can actually imagine a future where when people do something, they get paid for it in like a streaming music kind of a sense, right? It's like I did the thing, the payments in the bank, we're done with that part, move on. And it's just this constant kind of churn of checks and balances where you don't simply have sure. to rely yeah. on what somebody said they did or what corners you don't know they cut or whatever, because there are these kind of built-in checks and balances. It's kind oh, of absolutely. I mean, and yeah, and we joke around in our house because like the amount of time that we spend internally, like when it's like when I have like invoice day, it's like my most miserable day of the month. It's sure. like, okay, let me sit here and type out everything I did. And then, you know, how much that was. And it, it is kind of a senseless thing in terms of you generally already wrote down the same items in the proposal at the beginning of the project. And it's like, now you're just, you're just basically again. translating and saying, I did this. And I mean, yeah, on construction, on construction sites, or even in design work, you know, you'd like to think that you know, the deliverables are all in a computerized fashion or they're physically built. Those are both things that should be able to automatically be checked. You know, it's, yeah. it's kind of interesting. And I mean, you know, spot the dog, the dog bot, I don't know what yeah. they call spot actually, but I mean, and the, the other one, I, I forgot the name. Let's go with that. <laughs> Quadruped. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen so many companies over the years that wanted to help kind of automate getting like model data out onto site before it was built mm-hmm. so that they can make sure, you know, exactly where things go. And I've seen a bunch of interesting methods. There are some that like try to draw on slabs, right? There are some that were like just going out and putting stakes. I saw one where this was kind of interesting. They were actually printing walls at a one-to-one scale on like tape, rolls of tape. And then you like go roll them out on site and it shows you where everything goes in the wall. Um, A whole bunch of interesting ideas. But I mean, the quadruped, I guess we're going to call it, is kind of an interesting one because the biggest issue with the ones I've seen that like roll around on the slab or drive on the slab is like, what if the slab's not there? Something gets in the way. Or what if the slab steps or it has a depression and it drops off. Or you've got stairs, Uh, right? Yeah. yeah, Or you've got stairs, right? I actually did did hear a story of a laser scanner like falling down an elevator shaft and I'm kind of imagining like some little like crawly thing getting over to the elevator shaft and then falling in. (laughs) But it's interesting. And these all kind of tie back. I think there's like three or four conversations that are like all the same, which is we got asked recently about, you know, modeling wall framing. And we get asked this like every, every 10 minutes, somebody asks about modeling framing. And I always go back to this conversation I had with Bob Bell, like a billion years ago, Bob is from like the electrical background. uh, And so we always joke around about modeling level of detail. And there's all these documents that say like, you know, everything's got to be modeled at LOD 300, which means it's in the right place in the model. And Bob pointed out to me, he's like, you know, as an electrical engineer placing outlets and switches, you can't ever guarantee they're in the right spot because mm-hmm. they go where the stud is and we don't get to control where the stud goes. And I'm like, okay, so that's kind of like an out there point of view. But I mean, if, if you take it at face value, which makes a lot of sense, then like, let's cut all this baloney where we say like people have to model to this level of detail because yeah you're right if you're the engineer you can't do that right 
unless we can actually say here is where a piece of framing has to go. Right. You, you know, here we need an outlet or a switch. So we need to put a stud here. And again, like if there are robots and, and stuff on site that can say where those things go, if they can do it expeditiously overnight while nobody's there and they're not holding anybody up. I think the whole reason none of that stuff really gets automated now is because it is unfortunately just faster to let a bunch of guys who know what they're doing run out on site and frame the walls however they want. Yeah, I mean, that that is the idea of Spot, I think, as, as one of the main use cases, which is, you know, walk the site at night with, you know, LiDAR scanning stuff and then take that point cloud, link it back to the model and do a comparison or do something like what you're talking about. It's like, well, where are those studs? Okay, now we can do this part of the project, which is place, sure. place the outlets. I just think that you're talking about a ton of data and you got to get really good at data management because we know what working with point clouds is like, and it's not the fastest process, but I'm sure that there's going to be smarter and smarter tools that can decimate and build, you know, like I can imagine this is really where the gaming industry can come in, where they're so used to working at such low resolution, but displaying it back to you in a way that you can't tell. And it just, it just works and it's totally optimized for the experience. I can mm. see some kind of interface where it's like take reality, optimize it for for a, a gaming engine, and show it back to me that I can link it into my design model and make adjustments as necessary, but not worry about perfection. Like that to me is where yeah. everybody's getting caught up in the LOD three hundreds and four hundreds, and it's like drawings were never drawings were never meant to they were meant to be abstracted representation of design intent, not reality. And you would let that crew figure things out on the site because that's what they were expert at. Sure, yeah. So there is a very, I think, big mismatch of trying to get models and and information to a level of detail that was never intended for an architect, at least, to, sure. to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we see this a lot. Like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we started... Um, we had to just build a simple content library for a client of workstations, you know, just desks for offices for space planning. Um, and it sounds like a, you know, a really simple, you know, basic thing and it should be. But when you start digging into like what the manufacturers are doing, it's kind of interesting because if you rip apart a Hayworth or a steel case desk, it is all these individual little components and they're offering their content as all of these little components. Yes. And I'm like, okay, like somebody who does, you know, the actual FF and E procurement might want to do this, but does an architect really want to sit there and say, okay, this is a forward facing three panel metal and I'm going to put an end cap here. Like, you know, that's, that's not what they want to be doing. Nope. There's a desk and yeah, you know, I agree with making it so that if you have two desks front to back, they don't both have a rear wall because you don't want those things conflicting with each other. But like, holy moly, nobody wants to sit there on the on the manufacturer's website and like drag in individual pieces to assemble these desks. And I, I do think that's a mistake. Like, I don't think we want to get into that. And then the flip side is if somebody does pull down and use all of that stuff, the amount of trash that's just littered throughout a project is suddenly, you know, just untenable from a performance point of view. Totally. Totally. Um, yeah, I saw somebody was talking about going to Revit City for the comments because they're <laughs> hilarious, right? And and uh and and it was just like, yeah, but at Revit City, because you're you're talking about you have zero control over what you're going to download from a manufacturer or what's on Revit City or whatever. As far as like level of detail, as far as naming convention, there's so sure. it goes so deep. Yeah. And and it's like all I wanted was the content. That's <laughs> all. I, all I wanted was this thing to represent this thing. I didn't want all that other stuff. So yeah, what's funny about that is we we released two updates to libraries this week. And whenever we update one of our libraries, we send out an email to all previous customers and say, you know, here's an update to the library that you own already. So here's the new download link. And these were plumbing fixture libraries. So we actually went through explaining our process in one of these emails because we were we were making a couple of corrections in like three or four pieces. But whenever we're going in the library, we also do some additions. And the additions are from manufacturers, but we can't go to Kohler and like use their stuff because again, it's brutal. There's right. just so much overdone stuff. So what we do is we go to Kohler, we open their component, we find the nice geometry, we pick it up and we drop it into a clean component. And then we just 
fix a bunch of stuff, repair a bunch of things that you know, goofy things that they do. You know, they don't join geometry. They've got redundant geometry. So you get Z fighting when you're in something like Enscape or, mm-hmm. you know, or Lumion or whatever. So we fix all of that. And then we just have like a simplified, you know, dumbed down, if you will, version of what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's Which is weird. Better. It's like, it, it is, it is better. And it's yeah. just kind of sad because it's like, if you go to their website, like the toilet and the flush valve are like two separate objects. And again, I'm like, are you really trying to tell somebody they need to place a toilet and then place a flush valve? Like talk about an exercise in futility fees are already bad enough. Like, I don't think anybody's got time to place every toilet twice. There's so many uses for a model, right? There's, there is the visualization aspect. There is the energy modeling aspect, and there is multitudes of, you know, there's fabrication elements and none of these things are actually necessarily the same. So when somebody's modeling for documents, they're not necessarily modeling for visualization. They're not modeling for fabrication. They're not modeling for X, Y, and Z. Everybody expects the same model to work for all of those things at the same time. So, so this is a really interesting one. And I, I get into this debate on forums a lot. And we even, I even got into this debate, which probably worked against me while talking to a potential client about a year ago, because we often lose sight of what the goal is. And what I mean by that is I often get told by potential clients or clients that they want it to be that there's only one instance of something in a model. And I said, well, is the goal to only have one of the objects or is the goal to get done with the whole project in the most efficient way possible and have the most data accuracy? Because, and and again, even if you take a silly example, like architecture and structure, they're both going to show the same wall. Right. There's a number of reasons why architects have to show it for fire rating. They also need to host elements like doors in it. Structure needs to show the strength of the concrete. And I agree, this is a stupid problem, by the way. It's a software problem. Architects and engineers don't care about the problem. I, I get it. But the amount of time we've had the conversation about like, how do we make it work where there's only one wall? You know, if you get everybody to step back and say, what's the goal in only having one wall? Well, we want to make sure that there's not conflicting information. Awesome goal. We want to make sure it's shown correctly everywhere. Also an awesome goal. But, But as the goal being only have the model or only have the wall in one model, that's a lousy goal because we're sort of like, we're, we're trying to work towards this this utopian model that, you know, to your point, like who cares if there's more than one version of the wall, if there's more than one version of the wall, obviously every party that you just mentioned needs to know which version they should be using. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that's very important. I'm also hoping the versions are not very different. I mean, if I compare the architectural version of a concrete wall and the structural, I'm pretty sure the architectural one's not going to list like concrete strength and reinforcing. I am really hoping they're in the same place and they're the same exact size. Yes. I don't think that's a very high bar. Nope. Um, But I mean, we go through this for, you know, walls, light fixtures, uh, HVAC, air terminals, whatnot. And and to your point, you know, energy modeling, fabrication level models. So, you know, should we be picking up our design model and passing it over, you know, to somebody doing viz or doing fabrication? I'm not sure the answer is yes. I think there's like a big asterisk on that, you know. It's the same, I think it's the same issue because architects are actually doing a set of documents for plan review and approval, not for necessarily what a contractor needs to build the building. (laughs) There's a lot of fighting there. And obviously that's where it, it always has worked that way. And there's an expectation of a lot more communication that happens throughout the process, but it doesn't mean the model works for construction. And so delivering a model as the deliverable instead of a set of drawings, there needs to become a lot more alignment between what the agency needs to see and review and what the contractor needs to see and review and that model work for both of those outcomes, in addition to all the other ones that happen along the way. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's it's funny because for me, and, I, and I'm totally biased because of the type of work that I do, but you know, for me, there's a there's a much bigger asterisk when we talk about like the architectural model and construction versus like the architectural model and energy modeling. And like, all I mean by that is I also idealically was like, I want this model that we're building in architecture to get used by energy analysis, you know, folks. And by and large, all the energy analysis professionals I talked to were like, yeah, we're going to build our own because it's going to be 150 times faster than fixing that thing. Yes. And I'm like, really? But there should only be one model. And no, I was totally wrong because they could pull in the architectural model, rebuild a much simpler model that they worked or they needed to work in energy analysis. And they were done in like an hour. Right. right. <laughs> Whereas like in an hour, they could solve one hole in the architectural model. Yes. Now, 
architecture and construction, like I, I totally understand and, and somewhat agree that it can't just be the model gets lobbed over the fence and folks in construction take it and automatically do whatever they want. However, the amount of holes and disparities coming out of architectural models right now, I do think it's on architects to, to tighten that up. I mean, I agree, you can't just lob it over the fence and let GCs do whatever they want with it. But I do think there should be a realistic expectation. Like, I mean, let's let's take the age old note of like, do not scale the drawings, mm-hmm, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I understand why the note exists. It's a valid note, given all those those reasons that it exists. However, it shouldn't be misconstrued or, you know, expanded upon to mean that if you go scale a room, the room scales as 25 feet when it's 20. Like, come on, that that can't happen. You know, there has to be a reasonable expectation of accuracy. This is a risk um, management uh, Keynote. Sure. <laughs> That's all sure. it is. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, it, it, it is, but you know, like, and you know that like, you know, we've had a lot of fun at Parallax in terms of when we, when we get to do modeling for contractors, we get to find all kinds of crazy things, but we shouldn't be finding that, you know, architecture, structure, civil, and landscape, all four of them drew the same wall. It's four different sizes. It's in four different locations. It's four different height. Like, that level of what the heckness shouldn't be happening on jobs. You know, it's totally fair to say, don't scale, don't scale the dimension. If you need a dimension issue an RFI, I'm totally on board with that within reason. Like if, if I'm the GC and I say, what size and what location is this wall? And none of the four parties know, okay, I want all four parties to go fix something in a drawing. Yeah. Right. Um, and the bummer is the way it gets fixed in drawings now. And this legitimately has, we've seen this on a job. We, we did issue an RFI once where, architecture and structure had conflicting dimensions and the way it got fixed is one of the disciplines took the dimensions off the drawing. There you go. Not so, my problem. <laughs> so, so I, I, I get that in the spirit of the RFI, the issue is now fixed, but the drawing is still wrong. And if you overlaid them, they still didn't match up. And then of course their answer was, well, it's not dimensioned and you can't scale the drawings. And I'm like, is this really, is this really where we are? <laughs> But that disclaimer came from the days of old when we were drawing by hand and it's like, instead of redrawing the whole sheet, I'm just going to change the number on the dimension. Of course. Totally. (laughs) But we still, we're still using it. It's crazy. And I kind of wonder about that now too. Like we still have these discussions about old school graphical standards, right? And Mm -hmm. The other day we were talking to a new client about like tags and okay, so, you know, the, the old school tradition, like if a door tag is in an enlarged plan, it doesn't also get tagged in the overall plan or whatever. And I understand where it came from. So yeah, then you don't have to change it in two spots. If you issue a revision, you don't have to revise two sheets. Does this really still need to be driving that? Right. I mean, because, and I, you know, that's a stupid problem, but it's like the number changes automatically unless right. you've completely borked something. So yes. we don't need to worry about that clouding or revision is still an issue but holy cow like you automate pdfing the drawings and all this stuff i'm like why like this annoys me that we're still having yes. to worry about this right. and so it's kind of one of those things that i'm just like why is why is that still driving like why is that still even a thing i saw it once where a um i got a call actually from a somebody on the risk management team and they said hey what do you think about this this just came across my desk they were doing qa on a mm. on a set of drawings and there was just a note. There were no dimensions on the sheet. And it was like a slab plan, okay? And it said, check model for dimensions. And it was like, well, okay, I, I totally understand. Like, these people are, they are thinking, they're forward thinking. because Sure. But they're also assuming several things that may not, in fact, be true. You don't know the level of sophistication of the contractor because it's designed right. to build. You don't know what software they're using, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And at the same time, it's like, this is what we want to shoot for at some point. And then, and then the, it just goes to the lawyer and the lawyer says, no way, because the lawyer says standard of care is dimensions on drawings. That's what everybody does. So yeah, you can't, yeah. you don't get to get out of that. <laughs> yeah. You know, so naively and arrogantly, I can just throw the grenade up in the air and say the lawyers and the principals and the people who wrote the contracts are all the people that need to just get out of the way. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the most frustrating thing to me. And you know, and I go back to, you know, working on the BIM side, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not on the architectural side and I'm not writing any of the contracts, but I get asked to review a lot of clients' BIM documents. And it's like, well, we took the time, we wrote this entire BIM execution plan and we wrote all these standards and we did all this stuff. And then we just grenaded the whole thing because, well, we have to use the AIA's documents. That's what this person prefers. And I'm like, 
you know, with respect to the AIA, like I understand that their charter is very different than, you know, what the goal is of modeling technology. And, you know, if you go to the AIA or you go to the AGC and you ask them about their standards for what they think is important out of a model, obviously they have, you know, they have a, a specialized interest in what they want those models to do or not do. Right. Um, and and I go back to uh, the fact that there are, according to some of these agencies, different level of details for construction documents versus suitable for coordination. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> so you're saying the drawings go out and they're good enough to draw and be complete drawing wise, but they're not good enough to do coordination wise. I, I question the validity of that basic principle. Mm. Even when I was doing architecture in Revit, when I used to work in architecture, like once the drawings went out, at least for the firm I used to work in, that was it. Like they were out there. And once they were out there, we had to live and die with those. So yeah, it's not, it's not okay for me that like, we're going to kick the drawings out the door and then, you know, take six weeks to make changes that suddenly make them valid for coordination. Why don't we just call that the drawings right? and call the other thing 80%. (laughs) Yeah. And this gets back to, I think the the stuff we were talking about earlier with uh, what a contractor needs versus what an agency needs in a model. And I don't think we even ask the question enough of the contractor and often because we're in a design bid build situation rather than design build, which is what mm-hmm. do you need in this set of drawings? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, what do you need in the drawings? What would you like out of the model? Um, and, you know, that, that gets interesting because, again, so many folks on the, on the design side still act like they're not aware that electronic exports are a thing, mm-hmm. that they happen. And, again, it comes back to, well, the, well they're, they export CAD plans at their own risk. Like, oh, my gosh, like, let's all take a step back for a second because – unless everybody in architecture has taken one of their own PDF plans and then sat there in AutoCAD and tried to redraw the entire plan based on the dimensions, I don't think folks understand the time investment they're talking about. So, I mean, to clear the air, nobody's doing it. GCs aren't doing it. Subcontractors aren't doing it. Nobody is starting from a blank slate and based solely on dimensions and wall types, recreating entire drawings for the production of their shop drawings. Like that doesn't happen. Um, Or if it does, it happens like with like, five out of a hundred subcontractors. So, you know, it's kind of like an, if everybody understands that happens, then yeah, going back to your question, you know, maybe the entire drawing set doesn't need to be complete. Maybe they need to know that what's in an eighth inch plan matches what's in a plan detail. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's not, that's not a crazy standard to want to say is I just want the eighth inch plan to be correct dimensionally. Right. Yeah. You know, I can get And I think one of the issues here is, is because there is this level of, distrust between parties that or an adversarial even nature to it that that those questions never even come up because nobody wants to be in a position of kind of submission submissiveness (laughs) to to another party to say well what do you actually need because there isn't a value placed on us all being on the same team or because of all of the the legal nature that's happened yeah, I mean, and it, it's kind of funny to me, you know, that that all the parties are involved in the job at very different points in time. I mean, the design team may have been involved for five years prior, and then right. suddenly the building team comes out there. And, you know, one of the biggest frustrations that I see is, you know, if you're the owner and something goes wrong on the job site, I mean, within reason, and of course, I'm overgeneralizing when I say this, but like within reason, you know, there's there's design fees, and then there's like construction costs, and then something happens on site, and one is, you know, the big picture money, you know, the owner can only really fight with the GC or the subs over it because again, yeah. design fee, construction costs. But the other problem is these folks already have their money. <laughs> I mean, the design already happened. They already got paid. They're in like the wind down of their contracts. So when it starts turning into mud slinging, there's only so many directions you can throw mud because, you know, some people are already sitting pretty and the job's over for them, yeah. you know, and I don't know what that looks like. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer. I mean, maybe everybody's fees for for big ticket projects like that need to go into like some sort of an escrow and they don't actually get doled out until the end. Right. And again, design build, that's what's great, you know, shared savings and project teams working together to solve those problems so that everybody, you know, gets to keep of, you know, get keep a piece of whatever pie is left and everybody gets penalized when it goes wrong. But, right. but that's all again. Yeah. Like you said, that's all contracts and lawyers and front end and right. 
And every time I hear that a job wants to do it in an innovative fashion, it's always going in that direction in the initial talks. And then the moment the contract gets written, it's, oh, but by the way, this is the standard form that we use. So sign that and we're going to do it like we've always done it. <laughs> Why did we have this conversation? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. A, it's a huge waste of time. Let's take a break from this conversation and welcome back the sponsor for this episode, ArcIT. I'm going to stick a review in this time. So here's a review from an actual customer of ArcIT. The team at ArcIT has been fantastic. After years of struggling with unsatisfactory workarounds, security breaches, slowdowns, and poor IT assistance, they're extremely pleased with ArcIT. The architecture firm of 40 employees with two offices is in great hands. And that was Zachary Goodman, who is a principal architect at CSDA Design Group. So as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. Not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms, and their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack, and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly and enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope, because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry. Their pricing is on par, or in some cases, even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to getarcit, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc-like architecture in the middle, and click work with us. So thanks very much to ArcIT for sponsoring this episode of the Troxel podcast. And now let's get back to our conversation. It's, it's interesting to think about how many different directions this profession is being pulled by all of the different parties. And it, it is kind of a, a really, really odd tug of war for control, for trust, for for progress, for non-progress. You know, keeping things as the way they have been. I, there's there is a lot of various interests uh, that are all at stake, and they're they're being pulled very hard in those different directions. They are, and it's really interesting. I mean. I had some of the most fun of my career, you know, during the years when when I was on, you know, integrated design build jobs while I was at Beck. And it was super fun when, you know, I'm in the room and the design, you know, the folks from, from architecture are in the room and the folks that are going to build it are in the room and we're all kind of slamming ideas together. Problem and solving, like, right? you know, yeah and, yeah. and it was really great. And it was always ironic because, you know, while I was working for a design build company, then the challenge was, I'll generalize again, but a lot of owners and clients don't want to trust that, uh, which is interesting because again, in that case, I had like that pie in the sky, everybody's in the room and wants to solve problems together. Of course, then when you're, when, you know, when you're not within that organization and then you're working with owners, you're like, oh, it'd be great to find a design build company, but you know, not every design build company really operates as like one thing, you know, right. it's like, well, this is design and this is construction and we're sort of together. So, I mean, it is a pie in the sky vision, but, you know, a bunch of us that worked quasi together back then, we all joked around that if like, if the five of us could be the project team and we could just go do a job on our own, like, and, you know, there was a designer, there was a modeling person, there was somebody who would run the construction team, like we would have just killed it. Right. Um, you know, but I think, yeah, there's all kinds of small teams in lots of different offices. Yeah, absolutely. They, they all, absolutely. Yeah. And the sad thing is they're probably all right. Uh, yeah. But, but you know, so there's the five of you or the five of any of those groups. And then there's the person at the top who has to write the stupid contract and right. then it's ruined. <laughs> totally. Oh, so true. 
So well, true. well, thinking about design build in a very different way, I, I wanted to talk to you about designing and building Parallax team and how you've kind of grown your team over the last few years, especially I think in the last year, it seems like to me in how you guys have gone from, I mean, it just started out as you, I know you, you added John, you've added several other teammates over that time. I just think it would be cool to think about or to talk about out loud building a team. And and what I proposed to you was the difference between building a team and building the team, right? And and I think that sure. the pandemic is forcing a lot more people to think about building the team, about finding the right talent because location is not married to work as much as it used to be. Yeah. So yeah. so I would I just want to kind of propose that maybe as a jumping off point for this section of the podcast get your take on maybe where you thought you were going to go versus where you ended up and did those two things match up or were they very different you know from the i know things change yeah. over time right but where did that start so it was kind of interesting right and so parallax started in july of 2015 it was just me and the original intent was for it to to be just me or one day to be me and allison uh, as since we're both in the industry and we're both passionate about this kind of stuff um and, and a lot of this also kind of goes back to how I got started in BIM from architecture. I mean, I, I love doing architecture. I miss doing architecture. Like I love putting models together, putting drawings together. Uh, when I worked in architecture, it was large retail shopping malls back when, as a country, we used to build shopping malls. <laughs> Awkward. Everywhere. Um, <laughs> and, and, and the trouble with that was, as I was learning Revit or learning modeling when I was in Archicad or digital projects, uh, I would get better at modeling and it was making my drawings better, but it was also making the way I had to do them change. And the problem was on a project, the size of a shopping mall or a hospital or a university or a stadium, you can't work on a job by yourself. You have to work with other team members. So it was elevate the situation of the entire team or always work alone. Mm -hmm. If you want to work alone, I mean, yeah, you can do some big houses and that's cool. You can do some corn shell and that's cool. Um, but I decided to step away from architecture and get into more BIM management because I recognized I was never going to be happy if the BIM stuff wasn't done right, but I couldn't do it right while I was part of a team because you're not in the position to change things at the firm wide level. And you also don't want to be involved in the drama of dragging everybody kicking and screaming. Right. So similarly, when I started Parallax, uh, doing BIM implementation for architecture firms, I love it. I love working with them to make their content better, to make their templates better, and for a while, that was uh, what, you know, we were solely doing, and it was great. The first time I thought about bringing other people on board was when we got our first two jobs that contractors asked us to model. And it was that same exact situation as when I was working in architecture. I knew the model was going to be great. I knew it was going to deliver in what we wanted to do. But I was suddenly very, very alone. And I was like, holy moly, <laughs> there's a lot to do. Yeah. And the immediate desire at the time was there are a handful of people out there who care as much about the fidelity of the model as I believe I do. And, you know, I knew going in, those were the folks that I wanted to, that I, that I wanted to work with given the chance. And that's tough because that isn't everybody in the industry. And, you know, for whatever reason, I know software is thankless. It's not sexy. I mean, you know, Revit is, you know, we joke around about PC and Mac, right. And like, you know, Revit is not always seen as like the sexiest part of, of, design, if you will. And so there aren't, you know, a lot of folks out there who care about every nuance of the model being very well done. But when I first thought about scaling the company a little bit, that's who I really wanted on board. It was like, how do we make sure this model is great all the time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was the first thing. But the, the second part was I've watched a lot of other companies, a lot bigger than us. Uh, and so again, at the time I'm still alone and I watched a lot of companies talk about how they were going to grow into being profitable. And that scared the bejesus out of yeah. me. So I'm not, I'm not a business person. I don't have a business degree. I have no idea what I'm doing most days. And, you know, we're just a group of people who love doing the work and we're figuring out the business stuff as we go. But I'm, I'm smart enough to know that when I hear companies talk about how they're almost profitable, but if they keep growing, they'll get to profitable. I'm like, alarms go off in my head when I hear that because efficiency doesn't scale into more efficiency. It typically scales into less efficiency. Right. You know, if you're operating at like 75% efficiency now and you try to double the size of the company, your efficiency is going to drop because right. that 25% that of inefficiency begets, wait, how do we do this? Or where do I find that book? Or, right. hey, does anyone know? And so I 
intentionally and still to this day, I we're growing very, very slow because I always want it to be that we're already doing what we need to be doing and dang, we're just way overworked and we need to bring somebody on to, to do more and to innovate more, but not that, oh, we'll suddenly be able to make it if we just have these other people here. Um, so, so we've never grown as a, as a strategy to, to be successful, but everybody that joined the team was somebody that, you know, we, we didn't decide like on day one, like, Hey, let's hire somebody. And then, okay, let's pick out these people. Uh, everybody that's on the team now, um, when we had a conversation about it, you know, whether it was, you know, at an event or over email or whatever, it was like, oh man, imagine what we would do working together. And I mean, some of the, yeah. some, you know, and some of the stories are actually like, so, I mean, John, we were communicating over email and John was basically teaching me Dynamo <laughs> because, you know, here was this thing and I had no idea how to use it. And, you know, John loves helping people in the community. And then he was teaching me how to do all this stuff in Dynamo. And I was like, damn, just like, you know, but again, it was both of our nights and both of our weekends because like, you know, he had a job and I was busy working and, uh, and it was like, man, imagine if we were just on the same team and we could just bounce ideas off of each other, like, like this all the time. And then when it made sense, it just suddenly made sense, you know, and similarly, uh, you know, so Lauren, uh, you know, Schmidt uh, is one of the only people I know of doing landscape things that she's doing in Revit. And um, at the time it was like, I was just brutalizing. I was trying to like hammer these project site models into submission. And I wasn't even using Dynamo because again, I consider myself a Dynamo noob compared to like, you know, Lauren and John. So here I was just kind of hammering this stuff and reading Lauren's blog and, you know, trying to like copy texture what she was doing into what I needed. And then it was like, geez, just imagine if we were all on the same team, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we talked at a couple of industry events again, just when it was time, it was like, this just makes sense because we were already thinking about how cool would that be? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the moment there's an interest, it's like, let's do it. And Melissa was actually like person one that was in the back of mine and Allison's mind, you know, and, and, and Allison, uh, my wife, who's also an architect of 20 years, like Allison used to challenge me when we were basically sitting at dinner, you know, and I'd be just griping about needing help or something. And she was like, well, if somebody was going to, if, if you were going to let somebody mess with your stuff, like who would it be? Because I'm a control freak and everybody who knows me in this industry knows I'm a control freak. <laughs> uh, and it was like a topic of, I can't build everything myself. I can't do it all myself. It's, it's arrogant and stupid to try, but at the same time, it was like, geez, would I ever be comfortable just sliding something I had invested years in building over the table and letting somebody else touch it? And I'm going to be honest, I really thought the first time I had to let somebody else monkey with stuff I had built at Parallax, I thought I was going to lose my bananas. I thought I was going to have to lock myself in a padded room. And But then when, you know, when Melissa expressed an interest in us teaming up and she came on the team, I mean, every single thing that she touched just got better. And it was like, holy cow, I don't even want to like, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, I, I've, I've been the most known. I've, <laughs> I've, I've, been, I've been the most known for the door library because when I was at Beck, I started building door libraries. And I mean, we had to do a massive library update to the doors this year. And I mean, Melissa ripped through those things for like several hundreds of hours. And I thought I was going to be flipping out on the inside. And I was just kind of like, nope. Don't even want to know, like, just, you know, make it better and just everything has gotten better. And so I guess uh, this has been like a long rambling thing, but to me, it's like, it's not about like, I, I always look at it as it's not me saying, oh, let's grow. Who would we want it to be? It's like when I'm having a conversation with somebody about something work related and I just say to myself, like, damn, I wish we were on the same team, like doing that together. Like, that's when I know, like, that's the person that's the people that I want to be working with. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, you know, I know that you've invested a lot into infrastructure so that your team is all on the same page, which I think is a big part of being able to take on, like you guys have a documentation process, right? I think you're using Notion for that, which is one of my favorite tools as well, where it's like, when we decide something, it goes in here so that when somebody else needs it, they know where to look and find it. Um, but you also have kind of this, you know, IT infrastructure of mirroring all this stuff and standards. And you obviously create standards for a lot of different teams. So you've got to create a bunch of ways to update those standards over time. And I would assume that like, that's a big part of 
you know, somebody's got to have a certain aptitude to join that, which if, which is a given. Like they they've got to be able to roll into that and understand what to do. Obviously, there's some training and stuff involved in that as well because it's likely different than they've done it before. This is what happens when anybody joins a team at any firm is they bring their previous experience. Sure, and, sure. And have to have to merge that with your experience. But I would imagine like some a lot of what you've done has paved the way for this to even be possible because of the way you have always operated, which is very organized and like you said, very kind of controlling about some of those things. Sort of. I the, the one the one clarification I would make is I think even though obviously I was the first person, um, I don't think there are things that that I have done. I think a lot of it are things the rest of the team has done. I'm I'm very organized in my head. Yeah. You got your note cards. I'm very old school. Yeah. Like even to this day, you know, we are in Notion now and we were in Trello in between, but I am just, you know, I'm very old school. I write notes. There, there's paper littered all, all over my desk. And I'm, I'm very hard on myself about the fact that as every new member has joined the team, I always wish I had been more organized or more prepared for them to join. There is a system for everything. Like everything does exist in a specific way for a specific reason. Um, and, you know, over the last 20 years, if there's one thing I haven't been great about historically, it's getting all of those things documented so everybody knows the reason. Uh, and actually on another call, we just talked about the bus factor, which I didn't realize had an actual name, like the bus factors thing. It's on Wikipedia. It's crazy. You know, if you get hit by a bus or hit by a truck, you right. know, what's the damage and could things be documented worse? Sure. But I definitely wish I had everything in my head. I wish I had explained a little better for all of the members of our team. Right. Um, but what's also been great is as they've all come on board, they've all chimed in right away and every single one of them has changed the way we document stuff internally. Yes, definitely on the IT side, that's something I try to take the lead on because I wanted a certain experience. And this goes back to why we also do like software deployments at clients' offices. Somebody asked us recently, like, why do you bother messing with software deployments? And I'm like, because if we sell you a bunch of nice stuff, but then it gets installed and it's all trashy and it's miserable, mm -hmm. even though that's not a reflection on us, I don't want that experience at a client's. Like, I don't want the users to feel that. So the IT stuff is the same way. Like, yeah, we could have shoved everything up into SharePoint or, you know, onto OneDrive and, and had it be, you know, syncing to everybody automatically through the Microsoft interface or through Dropbox or whatever. But there's, the, that's not the like echelon of performance that we wanted to feel, you know, now that does mean that sometimes our IT stuff is a mess. Like we had a week long power outage in Texas. We weren't planning on that. So when my house loses power, obviously the rest of the company is left in an interesting situation. Yeah. But we're, but we're rectifying that. But I mean, some quick examples, I was totally on paper. And then when John came on board, we said, well, geez, we got to get rid of all of Aaron's paper notes because that's not going to work. So we went to Trello. And as you said, Notion was a great example. And John actually found Notion, mm -hmm. um, I think from Asan, from PyRevit, and from a few other folks in the community that were using it. So he brought in Notion, which was great. And I mean, Notion didn't just kill Trello for us. It killed Trello and like 50 other documents right. I had laying around. Yeah. But then, I mean, there are other examples too. And I, I love that when, when Lauren came on board, you know, we have our standardized office documents, just, you know, Word documents, Excel documents, whatever. And, you know, the first time Lauren went to type a proposal in one of our proposal templates, uh, she immediately just reached out and she's like, why does, the, why does the right justified tab not work in this document? And I'm like, what the heck is a right justified tab? I didn't even know that existed. And I, I think it's, it's going to sound small and, and stupid, but I think like you've got to have an ecosystem where everybody feels comfortable just like saying, Hey, why is this this way? And suggestion box. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and to, and, you know, to, to go back to what you said previously though, I think it's important that people not just show up and be like, here's what I did at this other firm yeah. because it's like eye roll, you know, but when there's a legitimate question about like, why is something that way? Um, I think that's awesome. And every single time somebody brings something up like that, it gets better yeah. um, for everybody. So it seems like the people that have joined your team are like a specific piece of the puzzle. Like there's definitely some overlap between all of you, but there's also some specialization for each individual. And, and I'm wondering how deliberate were you about that? Is it like you wanted to add functionality to your team? So you, you guys kind of found each other and, and made that work or, because the way that I said it at my previous firm was, 
we're like purposed. Like we're not like minded, right? Because if we're sure. all like my, if we all thought the same, like what's the point? Like, yes, I would love to clone myself. So would everybody else. But uh, because I'm so perfect, right? It's better to have like a, a a vision and a purpose of what you're trying to accomplish, and then let everybody be the puzzle piece that they are to your puzzle, and really like really hug the borders of the next person so that like you really are cohesive and in, in moving as a single unit. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, and so the circumstances were different as every person came on board, you know, so, so John was the first to come on board, you know, it, it was kind of interesting because when, when John and I first talked about teaming up, there was some overlap and I think it's great overlap what he can automate and what he can program you know, both in creating new applications from the ground up and also in what he was teaching from Dynamo, piggybacked off of my pension for having things overly standardized in a company. So those two things just worked really well together. But also, you know, we we kind of existed in like different spaces. And and I mean, John has an entire set of, you know, an entire client base that is totally different from from what I do. And in that respect, uh, I couldn't do what he does. You know, the bus factor is high with John. <laughs> uh, if if John's hit by a bus, uh, you know, and and his clients look at me, it's kind of like, ooh, that's going to be interesting. I like to say, um, win the lottery, Aaron. <laughs> win the lottery. The, uh, the, the lottery factor. That, that's a better one. Um, so so it was interesting though, because obviously, so there there is overlap, and and that I would say is like strategic overlap, right? Uh, John can do a lot of what I can do, obviously. So, you know, if we get hammered on a project that needs like 10 million people modeling, obviously, I think all of us at Parallax can do it. Mm-hmm. I, I I enjoy doing the the fine detail modeling. And so I, I kind of look at, you know, when we talk about like John with all of his app development and Lauren, uh, you know, focusing on foreground and our new landscape initiatives, if we had a project that suddenly required like five people to be modeling full tilt all day and all night, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put that on the entire team because I mean, John and Lauren are working on things that, like I said, I can't do. Whereas the skills that Melissa and I and Allison and I have all been modeling together, you know, for years and we all model well together and we function well together. Again, I am the weak link there. Uh, I'm just re I'm recounting in my head. Sometimes Melissa and I were working on a project together recently and I was modeling on the wrong work set. It was really funny, uh, but anyways, <laughs> no uh, one's ever done that. <laughs> it, it, no, it was only, it was only funny on that particular day because Melissa and I were modeling the exact same staircase at the exact same time. And we just didn't realize it because I was, I was on a different work set. And then of course, when we both hit sync, like the staircase was there twice and we we're like, well, like we almost came up with the same thing. I guess that's good. <laughs> So, I mean, th- there is some overlap and, I, and and some overlap was intentional, right? Like, so Allison and I, we love modeling together. I mean, in 2016, when Parallax was barely getting going and we were still in our first apartment, uh, we did some local custom residential home, you know, homes for, for a local builder. And, and we love being in models together. Um, and Melissa and I, of course, have worked on a couple of massive modeling projects together. So there did need to be some overlap because, again, the original goal for me when I said, like, to, when I would complain to the, at the dinner table, like, I need help, it was that the moment you take on modeling work, like, one person is automatically too small. There's, there's only, there's only two, two amounts of work when you're into projects like that. You either don't have enough or you have way too much. There's no yeah. happy, oh, I can just punch out 40, 40 hours of modeling and call it a day. So we did need some overlap, but it's been interesting that with John coming on board and with Lauren coming on board, we've, we've branched into completely different sectors that we weren't looking at previously in terms of application development and starting to work with landscape firms, um, which has been near and dear to all of us. Because again, Melissa and Allison and I have had to model some sites and landscapes that were just coordination-wise a total hot mess. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we can fix them, but we can only ever fix them one project at a time. Whereas if we can actually engage with landscape groups and start getting the fidelity of those models to be better, then potentially those issues can go away in the future. That's pie in the sky. Like if everybody gets better about modeling them, then the issues can go away. But Well, I, I appreciate you going along with me. I, I wanted to give you the opportunity here to just tell the audience, like what's new with Parallax? Where, where are you going in the near future? And uh, of course, 
I'll have links to your website and your social media and stuff in the show notes. But I would also love for you to just say what they are so that people who are listening can get a yeah, absolutely. You know, so we're all kind of so interestingly enough this year, you know, so so 2020 and 2021 with with COVID and all of us being kind of on lockdown, you know, some initiatives slowed down a little bit in terms of modeling for contractors and whatnot, uh, and going on site to clients' offices. But that gave us some time that we've been working on expanding a whole bunch of interesting things. So uh, Lauren and John have been focusing on some new applications, uh, predominantly foreground, which is this application that'll be coming out soon for actually modeling uh, site and landscape in Revit and having it not suck as much as it sucks currently, which everybody <laughs> knows is, is a lot. It's a good goal. <laughs> Um, and so, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's in beta. Well, it's, you know, there are still some constraints, uh, yeah. you know, from within Revit, but I mean, a lot of folks are familiar with like site designer and we, we want to make the experience different than that. And it's actually in beta right now. A bunch of our customers are using it currently. So we're going to be very excited when foreground comes out. Uh, John has been working on a number of different applications that do some really interesting things. Some of them are up on our website right now on the products page. Others we're kind of holding back until we're ready to really show them off. And on the flip side, I mean, you know, Melissa and I have also been working on a lot of new architectural libraries just because we've we've had the time on our hands. So things that we weren't offering before, you know, in, in terms of what the libraries are that we have, we've just started expanding them because after like the 800th customer asks, why we don't have our own detail component library. We're like, okay, we're building one. <laughs> uh, and again, like, I mean, the level of fidelity and care that's going into that detail component library, like everything is keynoted, everything works properly, line weights, line styles, all being taken care of. So, you know, we're excited about the new libraries as well. That's huge. Uh, yeah. I mean, and again, it kind of sounds like small things, but um, we get, you know, I mean, again, we love the highly parametric doors and the highly parametric cabinets as well. But then a lot of firms ask us like, well, what do we use for drawing details? And it comes up enough times that we're like, okay, let's just solve this and get it out of the way. I mean, John's working on an app for automatically tagging finishes. Like it's one thing to auto automatically model the finishes and that's great. But this whole issue of like tagging paint in a plan, how Revit doesn't let you do it. And everyone uses this goofy symbol and Recently, we just did like a little experiment, like, could we do it? And uh, yeah, so we found a way and, you know, hopefully we'll have that out soon. So yeah, we're, we're kind of going off in a bunch of different directions, but all, all exciting stuff. So that's awesome. Overall, adding yeah. like a ton of value to the people that you're working with. We hope so. We, you know, uh, you know, a lot of our customers are, are always really excited. I mean, Allison actually works embedded with one of our customers, like almost full time, uh, just actually knocking out project work and, I'm secretly jealous because every time I walk by her desk, she's got like an actual building right. on the screen. And I, <laughs> I see, I see all of our stuff in the building. Um, and hopefully Rob at Michael Graves doesn't mind mentioning this, but so, you know, Michael Graves design, uh, you know, up in New Jersey, is Michael Graves architecture and design story is one of our clients. And so that's who Allison works with most of her time now. And so they were actually doing like two beautiful 14 story buildings recently. And every time I look over there, I just get to that's see awesome. it. And I'm like, Kind of makes me sad when sure. I walk to the bathroom. I'm like, <laughs> I'm modeling toilets and faucets and she's working on a building, but that's cool. <laughs> that's, the, that's the game, right? Yeah, definitely. I totally get that. I, I remember when going a lot more heavily into the technology side, a good friend of mine was just like, so when are you coming back to the, you know, coming back to the dark side, he would call design the dark side, which because, you know, he's a Star Wars fan and obviously <laughs> loved, loved Darth Vader, but, but, um, and at the same time, like you're building something that is for all, right? You're building something that is much bigger than the contribution you can make on a single project for a single time, right? And sure. and that is a trade-off. And of course, we always want what we don't have necessarily. <laughs> but but it is a, it's a real battle, I think, that happens inside a lot of us. Yeah, and that's the part that, I mean, over the last 15 years, I've just had to get get okay with, right? I mean, um, and the beginning of 2021 was actually just a, a breath of fresh air for me because we did have a, a new customer that was in, a, was in a jam because they had a very large building, a very tall building, which is tall, tall buildings in, you know, in cities is just kind of my, it's just what gets me excited. And what's on your shirt? 
Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <your> <laughs> you know, most people, you know, I've been told this looks like all kinds of things, but I'm like, yeah, it is. It is a tall building. That's exactly right. Um, you know, in January or December of, of 20, I'm sorry, December of 2020, a new customer came up and just said, Hey, could you just help us? Like we're in early design. Could you model this building for us? Like here's the design, you know, it's in a, it's in a sketch file for a number of reasons. And it's like 60 stories. And I just, I, I spent weeks just hammering on this building and it was so much fun. Yeah. You're like, heck yeah, uh, I can. <laughs> I'm like, heck, heck yeah, I can. Um, and uh, it's, it's obviously a project that we haven't, we haven't posted any images of because we can't obviously at the moment. Um, but I'm hoping one day we get to show it off just because the entire exercise was such a fun story. And that particular client has just these great designers. And when we would ask them questions about what the intent was because of some abnormality we saw in a dimension, like this, this whole fruitful discussion would come out of it. And then I'd go back into my cave and get modeling again. And uh, it, it was just a lot of fun. It involved a lot of conceptual massing editor and a lot of adaptive components. Uh, and it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping one day we can show that one awesome. off. But Yeah. Can't wait to hear those stories. Well, where can people find you, follow you guys and your journey online and, and where would you like to send them to? Absolutely. I mean, so our website is parallaxteam.com. Uh, it's one R, two L's, sometimes gets uh, misspelled. Uh, it's all, we're also on Twitter at P-R-L-X-T-E-A-M. Um, and all of us have different Twitter handles. Of course, I'm Twice Roads Fool. John is 62nd Revit. Lauren is Landark Bim. Melissa is M. Thesens. Allison is the lone standout who is not on Twitter. <laughs> so I collect all of her tweets. Um, and uh, yeah, and there's a, there's a contact form on I, the uh, website if anybody sure. ever wants to reach out to us. I'll put all of that in the show notes so that people can uh, just click the links and not have to worry about remembering all those. But um, it is great to hear them. And it is great. You guys are all great follows. I, I, I really appreciate the contributions you make to the Twitter community. It seems like we're... The AEC tech people really do hang out more than anywhere else online. So thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation today. I thought it was it was fantastic. Thanks for having me. And I apologize to any listeners if I was just kind of rambling off. I do that a bit. <laughs> Not a problem. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Troxel Podcast. And once again, I would like to thank Arc IT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at getarcit, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for eTroxel. Talk to you soon. <laughs>